We'll read this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For, in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now, indeed, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, these members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary, Those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, and on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it, or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually, and God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the best gifts. And yet, I show you a more excellent way. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, it is once again the first Sunday of the month, and so we find ourselves celebrating a fellowship Sunday, and we return to our ongoing series concerning the church. In our text this morning, it directs our attention to the idea that the church is one body, with multiple members. C.S. Lewis once wrote in a letter and said, The church is not a human society of people united by their natural affinities, but the body of Christ, in which all members, however different, must share the common life, complementing and helping one another precisely by their differences. And I believe that our text this morning is making much the same point. One body, many members, those members have differences, different gifts, different talents, different personalities that complement one another and serve one another. The church, as the body of Christ, is made up of individual members, but we are joined together by the Spirit in the bonds of love that we might serve one another. Therefore, we should appreciate the gifts that we each have, and, and we should seek to edify each other with the gifts that we have been given. And so what I want us to see this morning is that this is generally true of uh, the universal church, 
but it is particularly true of the local church. In verse 12, the first verse which we read, the apostle makes an analogy from the lesser to the greater. He makes an analogy comparing the human body to Christ, and by this he means the church. Now, one thing you'll notice throughout the scriptures is that there are no analogies for God, for the Trinity. Sometimes, and I'll use a couple of big words, there are anthropomorphisms. Uh, anthropo, think of anthropology, the study of human society, and anthropomorphism is a fancy way of saying that Scripture sometimes applies physical characteristics of the human body to God in order to help us understand something about God. But it, Scripture is not in those moments saying that God actually possesses those physical body parts. Think of uh, what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 29, speaking of those who believe in him, those who are saved, he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Jesus does not mean that God literally has a physical hand that is large enough to hold every Christian who has ever lived in his hand. Rather, he means that God is powerful, that God is strong, that God is sovereignly in control, and that those who believe on Christ are secure in the care of the Father. Their salvation is sure and cannot be taken from them. So it's anthropomorphism. It's a human characteristic morphed and applied to God. Similarly, an anthropopathism means to ascribe to God human emotion or human feelings. So when the Bible says that God repents or that God is sorry, it doesn't mean that God experiences emotions the way we do, the change of emotives over the course of time. As we learned this morning in CLA, God is not bound by time. He does not experience a succession of moments from one moment to the next. Therefore, His love does not change. He is always angry at sin. He always loves that which is good. And for that, we should be grateful because it means his love for us is assured. So these sorts of expressions are used throughout the scripture to talk about God, but analogies are never used in the scripture to explain the nature and the character of God and the Trinity because no analogy could accurately do that. And when we try to use analogies, we inevitably end up Uh, not just being inadequate, but actually saying heretical and incorrect things about God. God is not like a three-leaf clover. If we were to say that, that would teach the heresy of partialism, that God is made up of composite parts that when joined together make the whole. No, God is perfectly united in his triunity, and each person or subsistence of God is fully God. God is not like water, ice, and vapor. That would teach the heresy of modalism, that God changes forms depending on the circumstances. No, God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No analogy can explain God without drifting into error. However, Scripture does use analogies throughout to describe the church. The church is the garden of God or the vineyard of God. The church is the temple of God. The church is the household or the family of God. The church is a flock of God. The church is a holy nation. The church is the bride of Christ, or the church is 
the body of Christ. There are many such analogies used throughout the scriptures. None of them exhaustively describe all that the church is in relation to God, but they each give us helpful ways to think about the church. And I should point out that these analogies are used of the church, and they can be applied both universally and particularly to the local church, but they are not to be applied to the individual Christian No one Christian is a holy nation. Rather, we are citizens of a holy nation. No one Christian is the household of God. Rather, we are sons and daughters of God. No one Christian is the bride of Christ. Rather, we are wedding guests invited to the feast. No one Christian is the flock of God. Rather, we are like sheep. And no one Christian is the body of Christ but rather we are members of the body, parts of the body, joined together into a whole. Verse 14 says, For in fact the body is not one member, but many. I've heard some really bad and unhelpful teaching over the years when the analogies for the church are applied uh, to individuals. I once heard someone teach that when you partake of the Lord's Supper, you should think of it, as taking your wedding vows to Jesus because you are the bride of Christ. That is just wrong in so many ways. It's the same mistake that's made in many, many modern worship songs that we sometimes describe as love songs to Jesus or Jesus is my boyfriend kind of songs. They, they apply the analogy of the bride of Christ to individual believers, and it's unhelpful. I'm convinced that type of music being sung in churches is one reason that churches have had a difficult time Uh, hanging on to men. No man wants to be told to sing a song in which he is to describe himself as another man's bride. We'd much rather sing about being a soldier in the king's army, which is more biblical, more scriptural. So as we address this topic of the church and this analogy of the body of Christ this morning, we have to remember that the individual Christian does not compromise the body. We are members of the body, parts joined together into a whole. So when the apostle makes this analogy of the human body to Christ in verse 12, my contention is he's speaking of Christ's body, the church. Christ is called the head and the church is his body. And the analogy can and should be applied to the universal church, but it should also be applied to the local church. The context of our passage this morning bears that out. Paul is writing to a particular local church, the church in Corinth. And while they should consider themselves members of the universal church, the immediate point that Paul is making in this text has to do with this local church, how they conduct themselves in worship how they participate together in the Lord's Supper, how they exercise their spiritual gifts together in this local body. So that's how we should approach this text, looking at the role of the individual member within the local church. The point of verse 12 is that the body is one. Each person has one body. Despite the recent mutilations of the English language, personal pronouns are singular when they apply to an individual. No individual is a they. We are a he or a she. So it is with the local church. It is one body, a unified whole. 
In verse 25, it says that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. Schism is another way of saying division. Now, this can happen when factions form within the church with differing agendas working against one another. If such a thing were to happen in your body, we would call that a disease. Cancer is a faction within your body working against the whole. An autoimmune disease is your immune system working against the rest of your body. It causes catastrophic results. The body is injured and becomes unhealthy. So it is when there are factions within the church Groups of members joined together and setting themselves against other parts of the body. The church is injured and is unhealthy. It's very dangerous, and the Scripture warns us we should guard against this with carefulness and caution. This kind of division can happen in the body for multiple reasons. Some are malicious, but some are not. They're just a lack of carefulness. This has particular Uh, application, I believe, to our context in America today. Many churches, without realizing it, have inadvertently created division in the body. Large multi-site churches do this. Each campus is really its own body. Every multiple service accomplishes this. If you have a contemporary service and a traditional service, you have two bodies that happen to meet in the same building. Even segregating the body by age uh, or by ministry focus, youth groups and young adult ministries, senior adult ministries, and so on, these groups can have a tendency to become divided from one another, not animosity or intentionally, but they do. Sometimes they end up at odds with one another, dividing over what type of music the church should sing, and so then the church ends up with a contemporary and a traditional service. I'm not saying there's never a time for fellowship and activities that involve smaller parts of the body, but when when those groups begin to coalesce and form in such a way that they no longer feel comfortable worshiping with the whole, then we've got a problem. This sort of thing has torn churches apart in the last 50 to 100 years, and so we must carefully guard against it. The Apostle gives us warning in this section against two other sorts of divisions that we should be aware of. In verse 13, he says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. Ethnic division and socioeconomic division. Right now, there are churches in our state, in our local area, who are being torn apart by these same causes. We could address these divisions today by paraphrasing the apostle to say that we were all baptized into one body, whether black or white, whether rich or poor. The woke movement, which pits minorities against one another, or the movement, the 2% movement, 2% and 98%, talking about our socioeconomic classes. These are both movements that are active in our country today and that are causing divisions within the body of Christ. And the Scripture says they shouldn't. These things are minor. We are united in Christ. Our ethnicity no longer matters. 
ethnically now we are the body of Christ. The apostle mentions both baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's what he means by being made to drink into one spirit in verse 13. These two ordinances of the church unite all the members of a particular body under one banner, the blood of Christ. They are signs of our fellowship and our union with him and his death, his burial, and his resurrection to new life. They are to be received spiritually, obediently, and by faith. Jews and Greeks who professed faith in Christ partook of the Lord's Supper together in Corinth. How could they then be divided along those ethnic lines if they were participating together in Christ? They're one body. But we are also individuals. The Scripture doesn't deny that. In fact, it makes a point that we are individuals who differ from one another. We're not all the same. We are one body united in Christ, but with differing gifts, differing talents, callings, functions, and roles within the body. Verse 28 lists several examples of this. It says, And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. This is not meant to be an exhaustive list, I don't think, but serves as an example of the different sorts of gifts and callings and functions that exist in the body. And they're very different. Apostles and helpers. Teachers and administrators, healers and speakers. Let's not get caught up in what these gifts are exactly or which ones are still active and which ones have ceased. That's not really the point this morning. The point is they're different. They're different gifts. Verse 29 then asks the question, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? These are rhetorical questions. The obvious answer is no. No. No one has all the gifts. No one has been called to every office and role in the church. The bottom line is we need each other. We all have different gifts, skills, talents, callings, and functions. No single gift is so important that it can do without the others. The apostle uses the analogy of the body to make his point here. In verse 17, he says, If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? Now, an eye is a very useful member of the body, but it's not the whole body. Without the rest of the body, the eye is kind of useless. The ear is pretty helpful, but without the rest of the body, an ear doesn't do you any good. The same can be said of every single part of the body. The eye can't do what the nose does or what the ear does. It can't smell. It can't hear. And that's to say nothing of the feet and the hands. The eye, the ear, the nose, these allow you to perceive the world around you, but you can't interact with it. Imagine that we go downstairs after the service this morning to our fellowship meal and all of this food is laid out on the table and you can see it and you can smell it but you can't touch it, you can't taste it. Your eyes and your nose would be doing you no good if you didn't have hands to pick up a plate and put that food on it, taste buds to taste it with. It would be frustrating. The body functions as a whole, not in part. 
The eyes and the nose have to work together with the rest of the body to enjoy that meal, to make use of that meal for the functioning of the body. It all works together in order to function properly. The same is true of the church. We need each other. Imagine if we were all teachers. Everybody wanted to talk and nobody wanted to listen and nobody to organize it. It'd be a mess. It seems that the church in Corinth was going down that road to some extent, and the apostle has to deal with that in chapter 14. Notice what it says at the beginning of verse 28, and God has appointed these in the church. God knows what the church needs. He knows just the right combination of people, just the right skill sets, just the right spiritual gifts, and who to give them to at what time. He appoints them as needed. He says the same thing in verse 18, but now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. We can trust that God has provided and will continue to provide what we need as a church, and he has given us each other, which means we need each other. But notice that the apostle gives us some warnings to heed in this chapter. First, he tells us not to despise the gift and the role that God has given you in the church. He says in verses 15 and 16, If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? In other words, don't, don't think that because you don't have the gift of prophecy or teaching or whatever, that, that the gift you have doesn't count. It does. It's needed. As I said a moment ago, the eye and the nose can't get to that food without the aid of the hand. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, I don't, I don't know what my gift is. I don't know what role I have in the church. Well, that's good. Now you're thinking about it. Think about it some more. Study the gifts. Pray about it. Get on sermon audio and listen. Paul taught a series on the spiritual gifts last year in CLA. If you can't figure it out or you think, well, maybe maybe this is my gift, but I'm not sure, come talk to the elders. Let us pray with you. Let us help you think it through. And if you're thinking, well, I don't know what my role in the church is. I don't know how I can help. Well, just ask. There is plenty to be done, and we're always happy for someone to volunteer. And let me say a couple of things in that regard. First, there are ways to serve the body that are pretty low-key and very helpful to the body. One way to serve is by organizing fellowship. Debbie Edwards organized the picnic for us last Saturday, and it was, it was great fun and food and fellowship. The Brysons organized a fellowship at their home a while back. Those sorts of events are good for the body. They're healthy. They allow us to spend time together, to to get to know each other, to enjoy food and fun together. It's important for the life of the body. It's pretty easy to just invite some people over to your home for fellowship. Additionally, there are some things that need to be done regularly that we just don't often think of. Cleaning the church, for instance, it's important. It helps us 
It takes care of the resources God has entrusted to us. It helps prepare this physical space so that when we show up on Sunday morning, our minds and our hearts can focus on Christ and on worshiping rather than on dirt on the floor or in the bathrooms. There are a couple of people who do that cleaning regularly, but sometimes they they might need a break or a vacation, so maybe volunteer to fill in once in a while. There are things on that cleaning list that don't get done every week that are monthly or quarterly. Volunteer to do something like that. The deacons have a list, and I guarantee you they're not going to turn you away if you say, I want to help. Secondly, the people who are doing those sorts of chores are working behind the scenes. I'm sure they would appreciate some encouragement from time to time. You remember a man by the name of Barnabas in the book of Acts? Do you know that's not his actual name? His name is Joseph. In Acts 4, in the early stages of the church, he's mentioned as being a Levite from the Isle of Cyprus, and he sold some land and brought it and and contributed the money to the needs of the church. But listen to what it says about him in Acts 4, 36. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement. See, he was named or called by the apostles son of encouragement. They gave him a nickname that stuck because he was an encourager. That's important in the life of the church. Another way that anyone could serve is by means of prayer. Pray for the church as a whole. Pray for the prayer requests that are in the bulletin each week and for any other needs that you may be aware of. Pray for the elders as we study and teach and preach. Pray for the deacons as they organize and serve in the church. Pray for the kids that are in here, that they would hear and absorb truth and be brought to saving faith. Pray, pray for the body. I can't even begin to tell you how important that is. The Apostle Paul continually, as he writes these letters to the churches, reminds them that he is praying for them. And then he often asks them to pray for him in turn. Charles Spurgeon was once asked to comment on the success of the ministry of the Metropolitan Tabernacle there in London. And he responded by saying, I always give all the glory to God, but I do not forget that he gave me the privilege of ministering from the first to a praying people. Pray for the life of the church. E.M. Bounds once wrote that the church needs, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer. That's what the church needs, members who will pray. If you did nothing more than show up to the scheduled services and the fellowship events and participate in that manner and got on your knees and prayed for the church, prayed earnestly for the gospel, prayed for the leaders in the church, prayed for the body, you would be doing a great service for the church. Not because we believe in the power of prayer, but because we believe in the power of God who has invited us to come before his throne in prayer. Another thing I would add is that you may think, well, I can think of some ways that I might be able to serve, but it seems kind of redundant. I think some other people are already doing that. Well, as I said, everyone needs a break now and then, but again, 
God in his wisdom has placed us here. He's given us the gifts and the skills and the personalities that he's giving us. And you may think, well, I'm just like a little finger. There are other fingers already doing things. Well, the body has two hands and ten fingers. We do different things with each hand. Go home tonight and try brushing your teeth with your non-dominant hand. See how that works out for you. You'll recognize real quickly that you do different things with your hands. What if our pianist got up and tried to play with only one hand? They need both. What if they had two right hands? That wouldn't work well. They do different things with the different hands. Even the non-dominant hand is important. There's no unnecessary redundancy in the body. God designed it this way on purpose. If he gave you the same gifts he gave someone else, he did that on purpose. Because the church needs that redundancy. Don't think, well, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body. Don't despise how God has made you and the gifts that he has given you. Instead, look for opportunities to use and to serve with the gifts that God has appointed. The other warning that the text gives us is not to despise the gifts of others. It says in verse 21, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. The eye needs the hand. The head needs the feet. In verse 22, it says, No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Necessary for the body. Each one has been appointed by God to be a part of the body for a reason. In his letter to the church in Rome, Paul says much the same thing. He says, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. This warning is really the flip side of the coin from the previous warning. No one ought to despise the gift and the calling that God has given you, and also you ought not to despise the gift and the calling that God has given another. We need each other. Paul could not have done what he did, taking the gospel to the known world without the help of others. There were those who traveled with him and assisted his ministry in many ways. Some likely helped to teach and disciple, Timothy and Titus, people like that. Some helped to make tents. Some helped to organize and manage the finances. We see representatives from the churches traveling with Paul, managing the finances. Luke was a physician who traveled with Paul, probably because Paul had physical ailments from being stoned and beaten and shipwrecked and scourged. In his second letter to the church here in Corinth, Paul says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Now there are various theories about what this thorn in the flesh was, but some have thought it might even have been a person, someone who was put in Paul's orbit and opposed him in some way, questioned his decisions, sort of anti-Barnabas, someone with the gift of discouragement. But Paul needed it. 
to keep him humble. Whatever it was, Paul needed that humility. We need each other. No one can say to the rest of the body, I have no need of you. Don't think of yourself so highly that you despise the gifts God has appointed for others. And don't think too lightly of the appointment of God and despise the gift that he has given you. Verse 11, which we didn't read, says, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. As he wills. Common, uh, Calvin commented on this text and said, The member which will not rest satisfied with its own station will wage war with God. Imagine that. If you are unhappy with the gifts and the calling of God for your place in the church, Calvin says you're waging war with God. That's sobering. You have no reason for pride. The Spirit appointed whatever gifts you have. You have no reason for shame. The Spirit appointed whatever gifts you have. God gives the gifts as He wills. Let us use them according to his design. And that use, that design for the use of the gifts is for the edification of the body as a whole. To look outside the text we read again just a bit, in verse 7 it says this, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Paul talks about those parts of the body which we think are less honorable because we have to cover them for modesty's sake. If they were uncovered, it would shame the whole body. But we ought not to think that the parts that don't get covered are therefore better. He says in verse 24, But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. God knew what he was doing. And those members that need more care, more attention, more help from the rest of the body are shown greater honor. And the rest of the body serves them with humility. That is by God's design. Teaches us to love and to care for one another. He says in verse 26, And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored... All the members rejoice with it. Our service to one another brings honor to the whole body. If we refused to help and serve one another, that would bring shame to the body. Whatever skill or talent or spiritual gift that God has given you, He has given it to you in order to serve others, not yourself. Whether you're vacuuming a rug or leading the singing, You are serving the body. And God is glorified when you do that with humility and joy and love for your brothers and sisters. The apostle ends this chapter with a call to love. He says in verse 31, But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Well, the more excellent way he is speaking about is found in chapter 13, which we know as the love chapter. There are all sorts of definitions of love. In the past, I have really liked the one that Vody Bauckham uses, but recently I've kind of settled on a new way of thinking about it. In the Gospels, Jesus is asked about the commandments. Which one is the greatest commandment, the most important one? 
He says it is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then he says, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, Paul picks this idea up in Romans 13, and he says, Oh, no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Now That's an amazing concept to think about. What he's saying there is that to love someone else means to treat them lawfully, to treat them according to the law of God. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul goes on to tell us in verse 4 that love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Don't isolate that from the context of chapter 12. Love does not envy another's gifts and calling. Love does not parade its own gifts and callings. It is not puffed up. Love does not seek its own. It seeks to serve others with the gifts God has given you. Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, Paul says in Ephesians 5. Christ was sinless, perfect, fully man, but also fully God. In Colossians 1.19, he says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. All the fullness of God. Christ had all the gifts. He's the only one who ever did. And he gave himself as a servant in love for the church. He is the head of the body, Paul says in Colossians 1.18. The church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. If Christ loved his body and by keeping the law for us and towards us, is it too much to ask that if we love Christ, we also love his body? You can't love the head and hate the body. If you are a believer, you're part of that body. The call of Christ is to love your neighbor in the pew next to you as much as you love yourself. Think about how we love ourselves. We're quick to overlook our own faults. We usually think well of our own motives and intentions. We do what we can to care for ourselves. That's what we're called to do for each other. Overlook faults. Assume the best. Do what you can to care for them. The church, as the body of Christ, is made up of individual members joined together by the appointment and calling of the Holy Spirit and bound together in love. Kevin DeYoung ended his book, Why We Love the Church, with these words, and they're a fitting way for me to end this sermon. He wrote this, Find a good local church, get involved, become a member, stay there for the long haul. Put away thoughts of revolution for a while and join the plotting visionaries. Go to church this Sunday and worship there in spirit and truth. Be patient with others. 
Rejoice when the gospel is faithfully proclaimed. Bear with those who hurt you and give people the benefit of the doubt. While you are there, sing like you mean it. Say hi to the teenager no one notices. Welcome the blue hairs and the nose ringed. Volunteer once in a while. And yes, bring your fried chicken to the potluck like everyone else. Invite a friend to church. Take the new couple out for coffee. Give to the Christmas offering. Be thankful someone vacuumed the carpet. Enjoy the Sundays that click for you. Pray extra hard on the Sundays that don't. And do not despise the day of small beginnings. Let's pray.